We are in James chapter 4, and last week we hit a sort of high watermark in getting a grip on James' diagnosis of the uniquely Christian disorder. We took it from the Greek word for double-minded, dipsikos, and I said, if you can't remember that, remember Dixie Cups. That'll be close enough, and at least it'll stick in your head on some level. And all of us have a touch of uh, dipsikosia, if we want to call it that. And others may have a little more manifestation of it than some, but uh, all of us struggle with it on some level. And as we looked at that, we saw that James is working through the 11 different symptoms of what this looks like in the Christian life. Fortunately, what James does at this point is both what we've hoped and what we've come to expect from him, and that is that he doesn't leave us hanging. He wants to move us on to higher ground. He doesn't want to just leave us with this. And with that, he also avoids what often becomes, or what passes for, the cure-all in some of our Christian circles. And maybe you've been guilty of this too. I know I have at times. And that is that we confront sin, we start to deal with it in our lives, And the cure is, well, let's get the law out and flog ourselves until we get to a better place. Uh, Just as it was said a number of years ago that no nation ever sued itself to greatness, and America has been struggling with that one, um, we're, we're, as Christians, can't go back to the law and flog ourselves with the law in order to get holy. It can't work. As we've said over and over again, any more than than having an x-ray taken can heal the fracture. All it can do is reveal. It has no power to change. So this list of symptoms that we're wrestling with, James has to move us past these to a place where something can really be done in our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's where we're going to get to this morning, God willing. Um, By way of quick review, we can go back to uh, what these all looked like. The diagnosis is the problem of Christian double-mindedness. And that is trying to face two directions at the same time. Trying to have my own agenda in life and trying to fulfill God's agenda in life. And I have to make a choice. As a believer in Christ, God did not create me so that He could help me fulfill my agenda. He created us so that we could help Him fulfill His agenda. But we've turned this all around and made this some sort of a... A giant, gee, God just wants to pat me on the back and make me a nicer person kind of a party. And that's not what he's after at all. So we've looked at how this manifests itself. First, double-mindedness will show itself in the way that we respond to trials. An inability to see our trials as redeemed by Christ for our good. So our entire approach to trials will be God fix the trial, not God change me. That's a problem. Uh, Secondly, is going to be our attitude toward providence, which is an inability to rightly respond to varying conditions. Instead, we'll start to resent God for the conditions in our lives. We'll start to resent the fact that we're in a certain position and can't deal with it. And then we'll begin to hold God hostage to change things to our liking. Temptation. Our attitude toward temptation will be that we start blaming God rather than really dealing with indwelling sin. Or we'll blame other people. We'll say, you know, I would have been fine if it wasn't for so-and-so, if they hadn't made me do it. Of course, that's never, never legitimate in, 
in a right-minded heart and mind. Our tendency toward letting anger play a large role in our lives. Forgetting, as we're told in 119 through 21, that human anger does not produce God's righteousness. And if it's God's righteousness that's the agenda, then human anger is never going to get us there. That's, that's never going to work. Uh, we have to deal with the fact that sometimes we have a, a disjuncture between our understanding of faith and works and how they are together. How true faith always manifests itself in works, although you can have works that are minus faith. And we've got to go back and wrestle with that. And we've been dealing with unbridled communication, the tongue. What happens when we believe that we can curse men who are made in God's image and still think that praise to him is going to be acceptable. Those two can't exist in the same sphere. We've got to deal with that, and we've got to bring that into its proper place. It'll show itself in partiality or prejudice. There is no room in the Christian life for prejudice based on any external or perceived internal difference. Racism has no place in the Christian heart and mind on any level, let alone that creeping in in some some other way. Uh, It'll show itself in the adoption of earthly wisdom over, over heavenly wisdom, not moving toward those things that God has for us. It'll show itself in constant conflict. We will be a a people who are conflicted with one another. This is one of the great signs that the church is very double-minded. Because where do we find so much conflict? In the church. How can that be? Somewhere along the line, we're not agreed to following God's agenda, but wanting to assert our own under God's banner. In the way we make decisions, we're going to come up to that one soon Uh, without regard for God's agenda, and lastly, in self-justifying greed. Uh, You you know how we'll self-justify that. We're just being wise. Just being wise. Well, we'll we'll come to that over in due course, as D.A. Carson would say. And catching the full weight of what it means that we are adulteresses, we're coming back to this area of conflict in chapter 4. And this is the final symptom, this ninth symptom. Now he gives us some help, and then he'll move us on to exposing us in two more of these with a little a little short discursus into dealing with uh, brothers speaking evil against one another. Again, something we've almost taken as a human right in America. Christians get to criticize everybody, don't we? And he's not going to let us get away with that. He's going to say, no, that's that's not a proper biblical way of approaching. It's not the Spirit of Christ. And that's what he wants to move us toward. So catching the full weight of what this means, that we are adulteresses in all of this, how will God respond to us even if we see the gravity of it and try to do something? He says that living in this double-minded way is spiritual adultery. It is serving another God other than the true God. Instead of being wholly His, singly His, exclusively His, I'm trying to serve another God, and even if that God is me, that's still adultery. I'm still serving the wrong God. I'm trying to be joined to the wrong, to the wrong one. And, and let me remind you, this is to us who are born again. If you're not saved here this morning, this isn't your problem. You've got a, a more fundamental issue. You still need to be reconciled to God through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. 
You still need to put down your your arms of warfare against him over who has the right of supremacy over your soul and accept his forgiveness for your rebellion, his cleansing for your sin, that you might be his and brought back to him, united to him. This is for Christians, and the only reason these are an issue for us is because of the nature of our relationship to him in Christ. That's what makes this so profoundly Important. Okay, so what do we do now? Where do we go with all this? What's the cure for double-mindedness? We look at ourselves, and maybe we don't have every one of those symptoms, but without a doubt we have some of them, and what do we do about it? And that's what he gives us in verse 6. Let's watch the flow of the passage again. Come back to... um, Well, let's start in verse 1 again. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you, competing desires among us? You desire and you don't have, so you murder. You hate your brother, which is the equivalent of murder we've seen in several passages. You covet and you cannot obtain, and so you fight and quarrel. This is where all fights and quarrels ultimately come from, conflicting desires, mine versus someone else's. And yet you do not have because you do not ask. You're not taking these things to God because you're not seeking Him to be your source. And when you do ask Him, you ask ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, not seeking His agenda, but seeking your own. And so He then uses this word, you adulterous people, literally in the Greek, adulteresses, the whole bunch of us, as the bride of Christ. This is an, an adulterous response to our betrothed, the one who is our Husband, Christ Jesus. Don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? You can't be a friend of the world's wisdom without being at at divides with God's. The two can't coexist. There There are lots of ladies around of whom I cannot have a friendship if I want to have the right relationship with my wife. She'll be the first to tell you that. Christ is the same. He has exclusive rights to us, is betrothed to us. And it's the seriousness of that relationship that makes this so monumental for us as believers. Therefore, whoever wishes to be the friend of the world makes himself the enemy of God. You can't do one without actually doing the other. Therefore, whoever wishes to be A friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God, or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in his? Oh, how he wants us to partake of and live in the fullness of the spirit of Christ that he's made to dwell in us, and this is just the opposite. It's his desire for us to have the fullness of that. Because he cannot bless us with anything greater than himself. He can't. He is the highest good. So, what's the answer? Verse 6, but he gives more grace. To us adulteresses, he gives more grace. And therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So, what's the answer? It's totally counterintuitive. 
This is not what I would expect the answer to be. I would expect the answer to be, grit your teeth and try harder. And it isn't. The answer is, get more grace. Get a greater experience of the wonder and the glory of His unmerited favor and how willing He is to pour that out to us and to have us partake of it. That's His answer. Get more grace. Understand that He is more favorable than you ever imagined, more merciful than you could have comprehended, more faithful than you ever dreamed, more wonderful and glorious and full of unmerited Favor. Get yourself full of the majesty and the glory of what it means to be a partaker of the divine favor of God. It's astounding. That is not where I would have gone. Not at all. But it's what we get in 2 Corinthians, isn't it? And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. It is by beholding His glory that we are transformed. It's not by the doing of self. It's by the beholding of Him. Setting the heart and the mind on the wonders of Christ. Of being overwhelmed with how extraordinary, how stupendous, how unspeakably wonderful He is. That's what transforms us. The problem is we don't spend enough time exploring how good, how faithful, how merciful, how loving, how full of grace He is to us. And He gives this grace to whom? The humble. The humble. So get humble. Well, how do I do that? Why does He move it there? Because ultimately that is the problem of pride. My agenda versus God's agenda. I don't want to submit to his agenda. I want my agenda in life. I want God to fix my house. I want God to fix my family. I want God to fix my finances. I want God to fix my wife. I want God to fix my kids. I want God to fix my husband. He says, maybe that's not the agenda. Maybe the agenda is being conformed to the image of Christ. Aha, it is the agenda, isn't it? And when we're back to that agenda, then everything begins to change. So humble ourselves. Self-determination that pits itself against God's trajectory for our lives. That all has to to come apart. And it's in this abandoning of self-motivation, of self-determination, that we find the, the increased experience of His favor toward us, His grace. It's there that we start to lavish in the love and His goodness toward us. Let's talk about normal human relationships. Young men here, young ladies, at some point, no doubt, most of you are looking forward to getting married and having a husband or wife and a family. You do not get to lavish in the love and the intimacy of that other person until you are committed to one another in absolute, monogamous, exclusive marriage. Because that's how Christ deals with us. Now, if you want that love, if you want that intimacy with Him, then you're going to have to abandon your spiritual girlfriends and boyfriends. Whatever that may be. We're going to come back to that in just a little bit. But Scott was not about to say, I do, until I told the thousands of other thronging women 
I don't. That's how this works. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying to us. This is why the marriage relationship is meant to reflect Christ and his church and, and all that surrounds that. And yet somehow that gets lost in the, in the mix for us. So it's upon that foundation then that the next set of verses are given. As I said already, this is no exercise in grit your, treat, get your, te- grit your teeth and try harder. Just use mouthwash. Can't do a thing with it. This is a call to get back to drenching ourselves in the knowledge of His love and grace so that we're transformed by it and then willing to submit to Him in everything. Hearts conquered by grace. When we abandon seeking our own agenda first, we get the unmeasurable joy of experiencing His favor toward us in a transformative way. And the truth is, the only reason we are content with our own agenda in life is because we've experienced so little of the joy and peace and freedom and contentment and satisfaction that comes from abandoning our own agendas and fully adopting Christ, the expansion of His kingdom. The expansion of His kingdom through evangelism, through sanctification, and through edification. The expansion of His kingdom. That's that's where He wants to... To take us. I don't know if you've ever been spoiled for anything. Um, uh, in 1992, I got the opportunity to go to Denmark. It's the only place I ever felt small in my entire life. The Danes are Vikings, big, hardy people. The women are twice my size. I felt very good. It was, was comforting. All right? and, and they took me to a bakery. And they said, would you like a Danish? A Danish, yes. I love Danish. You know, little thing, about this big pastry, a little bit of drizzle stuff on there, some cheese and stuff. And Yes, yes, I love Danish. No, they took me to a, a bakery, and we had Wienerbrot, which nobody can possibly say. But it's nothing like what we call Danish. And once you've had it, you go to Wegmans, and you look at a Danish, and you go, what is that pitiful thing? I've been spoiled. I don't want that. I, maybe that's been your experience with something in life. Have you ever slept on satin sheets? Once you've slept on satin sheets, I don't, finest Egyptian cotton is like sandpaper. You're spoiled. The reason why we find it so difficult to disconnect with the, the things that dazzle us in the world is because we just haven't experienced Him enough yet. We don't know how great His love is yet. We don't know the fullness of that mercy and that grace yet. And it is in the filling up of ourselves on that that spoils us for everything else. That's what He's calling us to. Ephesians covers this in detail. We've we've preached through that at a different time. That being the case, I want to just take a quick look at the structure of these next few verses, 7 through 10, so we understand how they're laid out, and then we'll pull the the whole portion apart. Submit yourselves is kind of what we're working under. This is what theologians like to call a a chiastic uh, structure. You don't need to know that, but that's how it works. 
And that is that he starts with this opening statement, therefore submit yourselves to God, and he sandwiches it with another one, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. So those serve as bookends, and then his points, when there's four of them, run in between. And you'll see that each one of them is a couplet. So in 7b, resist the devil, and the answer to that, he'll flee from you. C, draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep, and let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. But between that, so it's those four in the center that are an explanation of the submitting yourself, therefore, to God and humbling yourself before the Lord, and he will exalt you. That's the structure of what you've got. You can make little notes in your Bible so you see how that fits together. But let's go back and tease this out in four simple things, because that's what he's given us. He's given us four different ones here. And the first one is fight. How do I get there? I've got to fight. I have to resist the devil, and the truth is he will flee from me. Why does he say resist the devil? Turn back just a little bit, if you would, uh, in what you've already read, back to uh, chapter 3. In chapter 3, picking up in verse 13, Who is wise and understanding among you, he says, By his good conduct let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. That's not the wisdom that comes down from above. But it is earthly. No, he'll go a step further. It is unspiritual. No, he'll go one step further. It is demonic. The thought process of the world, which is bitter jealousy, I want what you've got, and selfish ambition, I'll do whatever it takes to get what you've got, is the world's wisdom. And it is not simply contrary to God's, it is literally demonic. And so he comes back and says, you've got to fight that thought process. In yourself, you've got to look at this and say, when, I, when those thoughts come, when that reasoning is a part of the way that you understand the world, you've got to resist that. And the promise is, he'll flee from us. Now, I know we hear a lot in these days about spiritual warfare. This is what the Bible talks about when it talks about spiritual warfare. It isn't about chasing demons behind every bush. It's about dealing with the way that those thoughts come to our own hearts and minds and how we must resist the demonic influence of how this world thinks and think in God's pattern. Fight. Resist the devil. He'll flee from you. This Recognize the enemy's influence in the way that you have been seeing things and fight it. Resist it. Uh, recognize it for what it is, is the first step to being able to, to actually begin to, to wrestle with it. But beloved, we do have to start recognizing where our thought process has become so, we've imbibed so much of the way the world thinks. And worldliness, again, isn't all dressed up in, I don't smoke, drink, or chew, or go with girls who do. Worldliness is, is caught up with thinking my own agenda or the world's agenda versus God's agenda. And his agenda is the expanse of his kingdom in me, through me, and in my brothers and sisters in Christ till all is conquered and brought under Christ's lordship. So the first is I need to resist this. Secondly, 
We need to flee. Look at how he brings it up in the, the verse. Verse 7. Uh, or verse 8. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Flee. The more you come to know Him, the more you will enjoy Him, and the more you will desire Him above everything else. And it isn't by taking on some super sanctimonious set of new rules and extreme efforts. It's by running back to Him and collapsing in His loving arms in our utter inability and looking to Him once again for everything. That's why I had the portion of the prodigal son read again. What does the son do? He recognizes where he is. He sees where all of that is contrary to what should be reality. He goes back in humility. But when he goes back in humility, the father doesn't say, well, come on back and we'll try it for six weeks and see how you do. The father meets him and falls on his neck. They weep together. And he says, now now bring the robe and put it on him. And bring my ring and put it on his hand and put shoes on his feet and kill the fatted calf. My son who was dead has come home. And that's what he says to us. Have you been an adulteress in your heart toward him? In the way that you've looked at the world and the world's goods and and all that it can offer? What do you do? You just run back to him. You see, it's in the revelation of His grace that the heart is melted. It's in the revelation of His mercy that we're brought back to, to where we ought to be. Run back to Him. Beloved, if you've been walking your own way and you say, how do I get back? Just turn around. You don't have to bribe him to get back into, your pre- into his presence. You don't have to, to make promises you can't keep. You just need to run to him. That's all. Oh, how he loves his own. When we have, when we have sometimes utterly and completely abandoned him and disgraced him, and he just says, come home. Come home. I love this God. Oh, I just love Him. Because He's such a God of grace. And we make Him such a God of works. Third comes to us right on its heels. It's also in verse 8. Cleanse your hands. Free yourself, cleanse, purify. Get rid of these things, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Because double-mindedness, beloved, is slavery. It isn't an option. It's slavery. It's bondage. Refuse to allow yourself to continue to be defiled this way. Come back to your first love. That's that's what he calls to the Ephesian church in Revelation. Shake off the false autonomy, which is ultimately bondage to sin, and live in the freedom of heart and mind that's given over to his loving plan and purposes. 
Sin is a harsh taskmaster. It is a harsh taskmaster. Like the prodigal, you can't have the joy of the father's embrace without leaving the pigsty. When you run back to him, when you flee to him, you find freedom from what was there. Uh, This gal, this was uh, taken, this photograph, on the occasion of her first arrest for being a crystal meth user. Um, This photograph was taken a year later at her second arrest for using crystal meth. Sin's a hard task. That's seven years later. Oh, I want to live in the freedom of doing whatever I want to do in this life. Yeah, that's freedom. That's freedom. And what was going on in her body as she was being ravaged by those drugs is what goes on in our souls when we are being ravaged with any sin that's contrary to Christ. Go ahead. Seek your own agenda. And this is what's happening inwardly. This is after eight years. This is after nine years. And that's after ten. She's barely 40 years old. If drugs do that to the body, think what sin does to the soul. If you want him, you must leave the other. But all that we're asking you to leave is the filth and the bondage and the stench of the pig's die. To leave behind the unedible, poisonous pods that the pigs eat. What the world has promised but lied to you about. And be joined again to your husband. I'm not asking you to leave one thing of real value only to reevaluate the world and what the world and the devil have told you have real lasting value because they don't. Can I give you one more? Three lovely folks. Same issue. This gentleman here, basically nice looking guy, that's only three months on crystal meth. Three months. Uh, The gal above, one and a half years. The gal below, two and a half years. Oh, that's shocking. That's what God sees in us. As we abandon His agenda and take up our own. As we say, His kingdom doesn't come first. Something else comes first. What a contrast. What a contrast to Jesus' words in Matthew. Now, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I'm gentle and lowly in heart. And you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. My burden is light. What a difference. 
Oh, how we need to expose the lies, resist what the enemy has told us, flee back to him and free ourselves from this bondage to these things that are so worthless and so destructive. As I went back this week and was going over these portions, I was reminded of a quote. Sky likes to quote to me often uh, from Jim Elliott. You all remember Jim Elliott, the guy who in 1956 was killed trying to evangelize the Alka Indians in South America, him and his compatriots. He wrote a very famous statement. This is actually a, a photo reproduction of his journal. Uh, this is the, the real journal, October 28th. He wrote this 1959, uh, no, 1954, uh, I think, 56. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. That's right. See, that's the single-mindedness. That's exactly. It's exactly what James has called us to. The last, the last step, if you will, the last thing that we approach in this passage that's here in James 4. I can get it. Is to feel. Look at the wording that he uses here. Be wretched and mourn and weep and let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. He's asking us to feel the full gravity of what this double-mindedness means in terms of our relationship to Him. And not to skirt it, not to, not to use grace to somehow refuse the weight of it. It's a fool's errand to try and dismiss our sin lightly. It's not what the Christian does. When we resist feeling the full weight of it, then we lose a proportional sense of the greatness of His mercy and grace. This is one of the great paradoxes of the Christian life. That we are the only people on the planet who do not have to pretend that we are even in the slightest bit good. Because we're not. Our righteousness is Christ. He is our righteousness. John Bunyan, when he struggled so deeply with his own place in, in Christ, whether or not he was saved, struggled for years in, in his little book uh, that he writes about his spiritual struggle, he says it wasn't until the day when he realized that his righteousness was in heaven, not in himself, that he could finally come to grips with what it meant to be saved. Because his righteousness is Christ, not his own righteousness. That's, it's the imputed righteousness of our, of our Savior. So we can drop all the pretense and we don't have fear in the slightest that somehow owning our sins as absolutely and fully, and fully as we can will somehow drive us, drive us from him or drive a wedge between us. Because the only time when we are really apart from him is when we're like Adam and Eve trying to cover up our nakedness and hiding in the bushes. As Christians, we don't like to own our sin. We like to say, well, it's, it's done with. Well, we're still fighting it, aren't we? We're still wrestling with it. And we, we can't deny that. We can't turn from it. We've, we've got to own it and, and recognize how grave our sins are, but those serve to show us how 
increasingly glorious His grace and His mercy are. If you want to justify yourself and get to the place where you feel real good about your own righteousness, then it is to that exact degree, in that proportion, that you will have little understanding of His mercy and grace. You can't get the joy of His mercy and grace unless you feel the weight of your own sin. That's why self-justification is so deadly. And none of this would matter, not a whit, if it weren't for the fact that He loves us so deeply and is exclusively and eternally committed to us in the most intimate of relationships. Otherwise, none of this would, would mean a thing. He wants us to value our betrothal to Him in the way that He values it. This isn't grief over having broken a law. This is the grief of knowing we've broken His heart, if we can use that language properly. But a heart, a heart that desires above anything else to be reconciled and holds out to us yet again and again the blood of His Son is that which cleanses every stain and receives us back without hesitation or probation or conditions. It says, come on. In other words, humble yourselves. Humble yourselves. Humble yourselves, and He will, what? Exalt you. What a strange thing to put at this point. I'm stunned at James. Stunned at the Holy Spirit. In the submitting, in the humbling of ourselves, He doesn't just say He'll take us back and take us back into sweet fellowship but He will exalt us. The word in the Greek means just what you think it does, to cause enhancement in honor and fame and position and power. <laughs> it's stunning. But this is, this is how He loves us. What, is that, what does that look like? It's an old, old etching. Uh, the representation, you might not recognize the scene right out of the... Right out of the uh, the gate. This figure standing up here is King David. This figure bowing in front of him is Solomon. It's Solomon's coronation. He's being crowned king. Humble yourself. Fight and flee back to Him and find your freedom. Humble yourself. He will exalt you. He will crown us with Himself. We will rule and reign with Him forever. And as the King kneels to be crowned, so we humble ourselves to be crowned by our Prince, our King, our Savior, our God. He doesn't receive us back so that we can grovel at His feet. He receives us back so that He can take us to Himself and be joined to us forever and ever. Oh, how foolish 
to continue then to be enamored with all that the world says is worth our time and effort. This personal agenda of what I want to accomplish in life versus the giving up of the life that we might accomplish His agenda in the world. What an agenda to get the glory of preaching the gospel to lost souls, of getting the glory of being conformed more and more to His image, of getting the glory of of building into one another's lives the encouragement and the things that, that help one another grow in His image. Isn't that awesome? Gee, He's really asking us to give up a lot, isn't He? He's asking us to give up the things that will burn up with the use. He's asking us to give up the things that are worthless in His eyes. That we might have that which is absolutely priceless beyond our wildest imaginations. Him. In His fullness. Oh. No wonder, then, James spends so much time teasing this out in, in such detail. Don't be afraid to feel the weight of your sin, believer. Let me read you something. and I know we won't be able to do Q&A today again. I'm sorry. We needed to work through this in totality. Let me read you one short portion out of Jeremiah chapter 3 before we close. In Jeremiah 3, God is dealing with Israel in exactly the same kind of terminology. Uh, that he had married her, betrothed her, and she was unfaithful to him spiritually. And so he first appeals to a law that he had given to Moses. If a man divorces his wife, and she goes from him and becomes another man's wife, will he then return to her? Would not that land be greatly polluted? And then he points at his people, Israel. You have played the whore with many lovers, and would you return to me, declares the Lord. Lift up your eyes to see the bare heights and see, where have you not been ravished? By the wayside you've sat awaiting your lovers like an Arab in the wilderness. You've polluted the land with your vile whoredom, and therefore the showers have been withheld, and the spring rain has not come, and yet you you have the forehead of a whore. You refuse to be ashamed Have you not now just called to me? My father, you are the friend of my youth. Will he be angry forever? Will he be indignant to the end? Behold, you've spoken, but you have done all the evil that you could. Then he turns his sights on Judah, the southern kingdom, and basically says they have followed their older sister Israel to the north and done the same thing. And then in verse 11, some of the most amazing words in all of Scripture. And the Lord said to me, Faithless Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. The the betrayal there was just amazing. So go and proclaim these words toward the north. And say, Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you with anger. For I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt that you've rebelled against the Lord your God and scattered your favors among foreigners under every green tree and that you've not obeyed my voice. Return, O faithless children, for I'm your master 
And I will take you, one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion, the holy city. Maybe you're a Christian here today and you've been caught up in this world system. Financial security, security in life, husband, wife, family, career, Those are the things that have become your agenda. Personal fulfillment. Whatever that secret sin is that you keep clinging to so so deeply, I don't know. But I will tell you what your husband says to you today in that circumstance. Come back. I love you. And in the full experience of my grace, you will find deliverance from those things in their completeness. What a God. If you're not a believer here today, listen to the God we serve and know that even though you stand outside of His grace at this moment, He's appointed that you would hear this gospel today and know that there is forgiveness for your sin. That He will not cast out any who come to Him. That if you will lay down arms and confess your rebellion, He'll receive you. And not just forgive you as creator to creature, but adopt you as his own child and make you his bride. That is the wondrous mercy that's given to us because of the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ at Calvary so that we might go free. That's the gospel. Oh, I pray you'll hear it today. Father, I thank you so much for your word and that it does not mince words. I thank you for your honesty and your truth to us and and your willingness to speak to us in bold detail. Oh, Father, we're so easily caught up with the things of this present age, even as those who are your children already, those betrothed to you in Christ. We... We find ourselves drawn by sparkling things in this temporal plane. Do forgive us. And if our hearts are in the least hesitant or resistant, give us yet more grace and grant a repentance that we don't yet have. Till at last we come and fall at your feet and And plunge fully into this this labor of love that is your mercy and your grace toward your own. Bless these words to your people. Today I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You stand with me, please. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy dismissed.